Good morning. I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you have joined us here this morning. And special welcome also to you guys joining us online, especially you, mom and dad. Hi. Um, they have my kids this morning. My wife's out of town at a retreat, and so they're watching online. But uh, a couple of things before we start our sermon today. One is, I know a lot of you know that uh, Pastor Henry and some of the folks from our church had a trip planned to Israel. And wanted to just let you know an update on that. That, that trip has been canceled. And uh, many of our people were stopped in Minneapolis before they boarded. Others got landed in Boston. Henry had left early and he was in Egypt. Um, he's gonna be flying out of Cairo uh, pretty quickly and uh, he'll be then in Western Europe and be actually home this week. So we'll have a time to pray about what's happening over there during our prayers to the people later. I just wanna give you that personal, personal update. And then secondly, something exciting uh, is happening. It's the first week of our new pastoral resident. As you know, we had Pastor Danny here for a couple of years. Now we're starting another journey. So I invite Sam out as I introduce his family on the screen. Here's a picture of Sam, his wife, Vera, the four kids, Izzy, Robbie, Owen, and Aria. And uh, we couldn't be more excited to have Sam join us at the church. And so I want to have an opportunity to pray for him, to commission him into this work, and an invitation to you to love him and his family and get to know him, especially uh, after the service today. So I invite you to extend your hands out as we pray for Sam this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your providence that has brought Sam and his family to us. And we pray for these two years that he will be with us, that you would equip him, encourage him and his family, strengthen his, his marriage, his work as a father, and work as a pastor. Uh, would you just pull the incredible ministry you've laid on his heart, that he would uh, pour out into this place, our church, and be a blessing here and to our community as we look to be a blessing to him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad, Sam. Okay, well, uh, we're in the last week of a series called Everything. And Everything was a Story of God series, which is to say taking a theme in Scripture and bringing it all the way from creation all the way over to new creation, where God makes everything new. And so we're hitting spirit and new creation. And the age of the spirit where we live in now is this spot where the kingdom is already here, but not yet in full. And so what we're gonna look at today is how do we live in light of knowing that God owns the future? How do we live in light of how God owns the future? And what we see in the passage today, we're invited to do something. We're invited to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible or new here this morning, um, that maybe sounds kind of weird, we'll keep you uh, along as we go to explain things. But for those of you that have been here, that, that term's probably familiar to you. But even to Christians, that walking in the Spirit can sound kind of mystical or impractical or maybe even unattainable. And I think that makes it hard to think about it or engage in it. 
And maybe that's where you're at today. I mean, it just sometimes it can be really hard to understand, and even more so to live out. And what's really interesting, if we just, we're not thinking about it, we set that aside, is that uh, when Tim Keller preached on this particular set of passages, what he said is, if we don't understand this passage, we don't really understand the Christian life. To understand the Christian life. So that's, when we look at this passage today, my prayer is that this scripture and our time together is gonna to clarify in clear, practical, and attainable ways that we can walk in the spirit in light of how God owns the future. So before we begin, I wanna pray before we look at the scriptures and uh, I invite you to pray with me this prayer of illumination I'll have on the screen. Heavenly Father, guide us by your word and spirit that in your light we may see clearly, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your joy and peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Okay, well, just real quick, I wanna just do a very high level definition of the Holy Spirit. So the God of Scripture is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God who's given to us who, when we put our faith in Jesus as a helper to bring us into all truth, to breathe life into us and to do some other amazing things we're gonna look at today. And so simply put, the Holy Spirit is God who lives in followers of Jesus. Now those of you that just, you just know that, we sometimes just take that for granted, but if you just step back and think about it, just for a second, God lives in you. God lives in you today. And if you wanna dive deeper on this uh, idea of the Holy Spirit, we had an awesome four-week series earlier this year. You can go back and listen to those sermons. It was called Spirit. But today, we're gonna talk about walking in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the spirit, and like I said, it can sound mystical, unattainable, impractical, but we'll see some clarity in the passage. I wanna invite you to open your Bibles. Uh, we're gonna be in Galatians chapter five. If you're using the Bibles in the seat racks in front of you, we're on page 1,171, and if you're using a phone or tablet or online, we're using the NIV translation. So, um, let's jump in to chapter five, verse one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And there we're gonna find our first point. When God owns the future, the first way we can walk in the spirit is to walk in freedom. Walk in freedom. See, what we have happening here in the in the Galatians is Paul is saying to them, you're returning back to the law. They're saying, you have to do this. This is how you actually get true salvation. It's Jesus plus. And in this particular section, he's speaking to circumcision. You can see how he does that. So verse two, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He's saying for those of you that are in Christ, he is sufficient. Don't return to old religion. Stand firm in your freedom. That's the whole reason Jesus gave it to you. And just so you see how passionate this contrast is that Paul is. When we go back to Galatians 2, this is what he says. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The law doesn't provide any righteousness. Only Christ gives that to you freely. So stand in the freedom he provides. We are free from the law. So wait, you're thinking, does that mean I'm fully free and I can do whatever I want because I'm free from the law because of Christ? I can just do whatever I want? Well, kind of. But here's how we have to differentiate some things between freedom and unconstrained autonomy. In our current cultural moment, I don't think I could name a higher ideal or a higher good than individual, personal, unconstrained autonomy. That is to say, as, a, as an individual, I'm free to define, express, or act in any way I deem right or beneficial to me. Okay, well, in one sense, we do have this. But in another, they are not without consequence. And what we think about this affects everything. What we think about this affects everything. But you might be thinking, is this what Paul's talking about here? Well, actually, for some of the Galatians, they were thinking this. He said he had to remind them of these things, as we'll see. And there's some huge problems of them taking this freedom in Christ, freedom from the consequence so fully that they might be tempted towards unconstrained autonomy to just please their every whim and desire. That's what we do. And we might then find some parallels between the Galatians and Americans or Western culture. So, Let's look at what he says when we jump down to verse 13. I'll put it on the screen. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. We've just established that. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That's to say, our sinful nature, the sinful things, desires. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So in one sense, he says, have the freedom to do this. You have the freedom to do this, but he says, not to use your freedom to do this and, and do something else instead. So you're thinking, come on, Paul, what is it? This is confusing. Do I have unrestrained freedom or not? He says, we've got the full freedom, but don't use it to do that. What's super interesting here is that in arguing to not use their freedom to do something, he's still arguing for freedom. Why do I say that? Well, He's arguing for freedom from anything that will control you. Anything that will control you. Uh, N.T. Wright, I love that when he talks about some of the things in this passage, he says, this reason why I call them vices, because they get their grips tighter and tighter on you, and they become your God. And Paul says, be free from that too, and to something greater. Free to something greater, because when God owns the future, we want to walk in the direction of that future. And when we have to see something else here, freedom in scripture always has two purposes. 
Freedom from something and freedom to something. Freedom from something and freedom to something. He has freed us from slavery of bondage and freed us to live in this new way, his way, which we couldn't do without him. Think about the ancient Israelites in Egypt. They were freed from slavery to the Egyptians and that what they were freed to was the promised land to be a blessing to all nations. We are freed from earning salvation and free to loving our neighbor. Look, look what it says again in verse one. Never be burdened by a yoke of slavery, freedom from earning. And then down uh, in six, uh, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, freedom t- t- to love. And then verse 13, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. It's a freedom from the flesh because that's our default direction, a freedom from that. And then rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Freedom to loving. Freedom from something and freedom to something. Now I can't move on because you cannot miss this. This is the essential piece in the freedom. Listen, if Paul says we are truly free, it's for freedom Christ set us free, that's what he says, don't be under the law or bondage again, then why does he say the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, calling us to do that? Why say we're free from the law and then say how to fulfill it? That's what this whole freedom thing is about. It's how we walk in the spirit. It's freedom from and freedom to. It's moving from earning to responding. It's moving from earning to responding. I remember this old story that a a preacher told and it reminded me of my own time when I was at home with my boys. I worked part-time at the church. This was over a decade ago and I was in seminary and I was home with my little boys and we'd play with uh, trains, you know, with the tracks, Thomas the Train and all that stuff and build it out in the uh, living room and on the train table. And uh, we recently gave all that stuff to my uh, nephew, Zach, and uh, this is him sitting in the drawer. It was a little easier for him to get out the trains. Uh, It's a fantastic, uh, he's just so awesome. Anyway, but we'd bring Thomas out, all the trains and all that stuff. But here's the thing. When it came time to clean up, uh, we would say, you know, time to clean up. Or we had this, you know, clean up, clean up everybody everywhere song. I don't know if you guys know that one. My wife's a teacher. I mean, we had, had to do that. But um, now, the I, I, thing is, when, we, when this cleanup time happens, I can approach it in two ways. In two ways. The so first one is time to clean up. Hey, and if you don't, you're going to be in time out. Okay, there's one. Two is, hey, time to clean up. Let's do it together. Think about how that feels for that young child and even their experience of freedom. In the first one, they feel like my freedom is fully contingent on my action. And the second one says, I've got help from Papa to do what's right. I've got help from Papa to do what's right. Right. See, in both situations, the trains are being picked up but are completely different in experiencing freedom. Now, in reality, as we know, our, our kids still have the free choice to not clean up even in response to saying we will help them. We've all experienced 
that. But here's the interesting thing. In light of this passage, so do we. And that's why Paul gives some warnings on both sides. He's basically saying, don't return to earning your freedom from God, just doing what's right so you'll get out of being in time out. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. That's verse four. But he also says, don't just do whatever you want with your freedom as God has great things he wants you to do that are good and right. And much more exciting than cleaning up trains. And the added warning we haven't read is this, and we're gonna be in verse 16. Jump to 16 with me. So, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Using your freedom in this way is not the freedom Jesus has in mind. And Paul gives this stern warning as he says he's given them before, as I said before. But just a quick note to those of you in the room, maybe it's something you, you struggle with the flesh. And it feels like you maybe even times question your salvation. I wanna just encourage you that the mere fact that the struggle is present is affirmation of the work of the Spirit in your life and an invitation for you to walk in step with it. An invitation to walk in step with the Spirit. We need to walk away from fear of earning and start walking in the freedom that God provides. So this passage is showing us because God owns and has secured a future for us, we walk in the freedom from slavery and condemnation by anyone, and we walk in freedom to, being, to love, being led by the Spirit. And we, we walk in freedom from the flesh, and we walk in the freedom to loving service. This is to walk in the Spirit, and it affects everything. And this freedom we've been given is from God, as he owns and has secured a future for us. See, a lot of people that we know want the freedom benefits without the one who provides them. They want the kingdom without the king. And to experience true freedom, we need the king. He makes us free from sin so that we're free to love fully. And we are blessed to be a blessing. What are we free to do to love our neighbor fully, to help them want to experience the same freedom and secured future that we see and know and have faith in and hope in? So this walking in freedom, walking in the Spirit is to love and invite others into it. And, you know, I put in your sermon application guide those blessed practices. If you want to do a little matching, especially the kids that are here, you can go, where's that also in the sermon application guide? Because it's always on the back, on the bottom, those blessed practices. See, this is not something we have to do to be a good enough Christian. It's something we're freely invited 
to do, to invite other people into the freedom we have and the future they can have. We're invited to freely choose to be a part of his mission to do that. And just to give you a quick version of what the blessed practices are, um, again, is B is to begin with prayer. I'll put them on the screen. Begin with prayer. We need God to change our hearts for lost people and we need God to change the hearts of lost people. We have to start with prayer. And that's where we can be led by the Spirit in a direction that maybe wouldn't even make sense to us without that prayer and God leading us. And then we need to listen with care. When we listen well to people, that's one of the best ways you can love them. When you listen well, it's one of the best ways you can love them. And what happens is when you listen in the small things in life, you will get an opportunity to listen when the big things happen. You will get an opportunity. And then it's to eat together, which is, you know, special things happen when we share a meal, share coffee. And I even sometimes say the E is enjoy together because I know a lot of times the experience can be over board games or pickleball, two of my favorite. And uh, what's interesting is that, you know, it usually takes about 400 interactions, they've done some research on this, for you to trust someone. But if those interactions include something fun, it goes down to 40. Pretty incredible. And then serve and love, looking for ways to radically serve them that make no sense out of the fact that you're looking to be a part of God's kingdom and do something incredible in their life, surprising them with serving. And I think the reverse of this one is, and I think a lot of us don't think about this, but is to actually ask someone to help us, ask that person to help us, because it's saying we trust them enough to help us. That's a way to use that serve. And then lastly, it's to share your story, share God's story with them because to love someone is to will and act for their good. And we know that we all need Jesus. And so we have to be sharing God's story and our own story to invite them to be a part of the freedom we have in the future he secured. So that's how we walk in the spirit is to walk in freedom and invite other people into it. Being blessed to be a blessing. And you'll see where God is already working and he's invited you to walk and step with him in that direction. So walking in the spirit is to walk in freedom, freedom from and freedom to. And then also walking in the spirit is to walk in fruitfulness, to walk in fruitfulness. Now, this is part of the passage that maybe many of you are familiar with if you've been reading the scripture for a while called the fruit of the spirit. And so we're gonna read those verses down in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. One thing to notice here, um, which is very interesting, is that fruit is singular. Fruit is singular. These are the descriptions of the fruit. Think of it as like a nine-sided fruit or a fruit with nine qualities. And the other thing when we talk about these, what's really interesting about these nine is you could talk about these with anyone. 
I think anyone would see these and go, those are great. I love those, those are amazing qualities. And I think the other thing that I want to note about this is that I think a lot when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we think sometimes it's just some like magical, mystical explosion of things that just spontaneously happen. But we find in, in most Christians, when they come to know Jesus, that's probably when you see that the most is you might see some radical changes right away. This fruit that's just produced that wasn't there before. But I think for most of us as we're walking in the Spirit, um, we need to see that we're invited to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. That we have to, that's why it says at the end, since we live by the Spirit, what do we gotta do? We gotta keep in step with the Spirit. We have to, so I don't know if you guys remember those old 90s commercials, they're always like, 9.99, batteries required. You know, like always like, dang, I gotta buy more batteries. Um, I think what Paul could be saying here is he'd say, fruit of the Spirit, cooperation required cooperation required. We saw from the earlier passage, there's this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And we have to choose to walk in step with the spirit, cultivating the fruit of the spirit to use our freedom to walk in that direction. We just heard what those kinds of things that don't inherit the kingdom in the previous verses. Then Paul says, but the fruit of which there is no law. Meaning these are these amazing things that are incredible, that God possesses, that he wants to bring about into our world in and through you. And that means that those things will exist all the way through the new creation. All the way through the new creation. Uh, as I was talking with Pastor Sam, our new pastoral resident this week, and he had this commentary that he had actually done a paper on Galatians 5. He handed it to me. And what I found in there was this quote from uh, James Dunn. And in his commentary, this is what he says about contrasting these two lists. It's contrasting, really, that the first list is about actions, and the second list, the fruit, is about character. So let's take a look. What Paul had in mind was clearly transformation of character more than individual actions. Indeed, we might say his second list, fruit, avoided recommendation of specific conduct for the conduct he sought to encourage is charismatic. That means freely doing things that wouldn't make sense or you wouldn't even build a plan for. In that is the fruit of the inner transformation of character rather than conduct determined solely by rule book or tradition. I mean, this fruit, this transformation that's happening in us and this fruit being born out into this world will do things that we couldn't have anticipated or expected or even we might go in a direction we would have never chosen because of that fruit in us. See, this fruit seems to be tied to the kingdom, to this new creation life. I mean, think about this fruit and then go back to thinking about Jesus. He was fully fruitful. All these qualities in full, it was amazing. And because God owns the future, we get to partially walk in the future now. And what I mean by that is the fruit of the Spirit is some way is to reach into the new creation of this incredible fruit of which there is no law and bring that into the now. Bring it into the now. And what I wanna do is I wanna look at one of these 
qualities, and you can later look at all of these because I put a link in here about it, but um, I'm gonna look at the word faithfulness. And that's understood as loyal, reliable, committed. And uh, the late Tim Keller did some insightful work on this, and he um, was looking at not only the description of the fruit, but then what's the opposite, and then what's the counterfeit? What's the fake version of the fruit? What looks like the fruit, but actually isn't? And uh, I'll put it up on the screen here. He's using uh, faithfulness, and this is what he says. The definition of faithfulness is loyalty, courage, committed, utterly reliable, true to one's word. What's the opposite of that? An opportunist, a fair-weather friend. But what's the counterfeit? Listen to this. This is very insightful. The counterfeit of faithfulness is love without truth, being loyal when you should be willing to confront or challenge. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like an unquestioned affirmation. Is that really being a faithful friend? And to be honest, that's way easier to be loyal and loving without ever confronting or challenging. I struggle with this. I want to be known as loyal and loving. I want people to love being my friend. But see, even as I talk about that, that's the whole thing here. I'm talking about my fruit, how people see me, but not God's fruit in me. See, the quality description of the Spirit's fruit, faithfulness, would be loyal and courageous enough to challenge in love. And we can't do this without each other. We can't do this because we, we, want to, we don't want our good to be seen. We want God's good. It's not our good to be seen, it's God's good, it's God's fruit. And we need each other to make this happen in our lives. I want you to, we're gonna just jump into chapter six just for a second, I want you to see how this is lived out in and through each other. And Paul says in verse one, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. It, what you see here is it's testing our own actions and gently restoring one another. That's faithfulness to one another. And uh, as I said, I've included the, the link to Keller's fruit opposite and counterfeit for all nine in your sermon application guide if you wanna go look at that later. It's really insightful, especially on the, the other ones. But this isn't in your notes, but if, if you want to think about how to walk in fruitfulness, and we see this in light of the passage, there's kind of three words you could write down as to examine, share, and cultivate. Examine, share, and cultivate. And what I mean by that is we need to examine and write down our own thoughts on our own actions of where God is at work and where he's not. What parts of the or qualities of the fruit of the Spirit are present and which are not. 
And then secondly, we need to share. We need to be in close enough proximity with another person and give them even invitation to challenge us lovingly, gently. And so maybe write down a Christian friend or write down your small group or whatever that you can share that that's examination of what's going on in your own heart and actions with them. And then lastly is to, to cultivate, to cultivate. And this has to be how we walk in step with the Spirit. When we look back at Galatians 3, um, Paul says that we didn't receive the Spirit by the works of the law, we did it by believing what we heard. And he says, so are you so foolish? Are you at the beginning means of Spirit and now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Still, it's all the Spirit. We have to engage and cultivate the Spirit. That's an invitation to encounter everything as an opportunity to cooperate with the Spirit for that fruit to be produced in us. His fruit for people to encounter it in our world. God is the owner of the fruit and we receive and give it away. To walk in the Spirit is to walk in freedom, freedom from and freedom too, and is to walk in fruitfulness, to walk in cultivating fruitfulness, and to walk in the Spirit is to walk in doing good. Walk in doing good. And if we continue in Galatians 6, jumping down uh, to verse nine. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Walking in the Spirit includes walking and doing good. And I think one of the places where we can experience our most weariness our distraction, lack of focus from walking in the spirit is our work. I think it's our work. And I've had the opportunity to talk to many different people in totally different types of work and it's just plain tough sometimes to walk in the spirit at work. Now, just as a refresher, we did a series on work earlier this year and we were looking at this biblical definition from Tom Nelson who's done tons of thinking and study on this. And, and this is what he said when that series, we, he says that work, just defining so we're all on the same page for what work is, is whether paid or unpaid includes all meaningful and moral activity apart from leisure and rest. Work is fundamentally about contribution, not compensation, adding value to others. You see, when we look at our passage to do good, that all we encounter, we know that doing good adds value to others. And that includes our work. But walking in the spirit of freedom to love well, walking in the spirit at work well is hard and we can be very weary at work. And I think for a lot of us, we just think about it as it's a means to an end, whether it's for financial or because it's something we have to do responsibility-wise, or it's the thing I have to do so I can get to do the stuff that I really wanna do. But I wanna challenge you to say, what if the place of our greatest weariness and maybe seemingly distance from God is the exact place where God wants to do some of his most significant work in you and doing good in our world? What if that's your workplace? Because I think, 
for many of us, that is, that's really tough. But we, what if God wants to really transform that spot? And if you're a young person or a, a student, um, your, your work is your school. So you can keep tracking with me because this is exactly for you, that's, that's school. But I, the whole point of this passage is to aim our heart and steps in walking in the spirit in a certain direction. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he wrote this in chapter three, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So when we see God as owner of everything, including our future, our work and our work relationships, we get to see as God that we work for, that's who we'll be serving and working for for eternity. And it can totally transform our work of doing good and adding value to others. Because the doing good isn't so we look good, it's to show God is good. The doing good isn't so we look good, it's to show that God is good. And that can change everything. Here's an interesting study I came across. Um, the, they were um, looking at what were considered maybe unglamorous jobs and how people felt about their work. And um, it was done by, I think, University of Michigan and Yale. And um, for the profession they chose, hospital janitors, Ho hospital janitors. But what they learned from their studies took them completely by surprise. When the, the researchers interviewed the, the cleaning staff uh, of a major hospital in, in the Midwest, they discovered that there's a certain subset of these uh, janitors that didn't see themselves as part of the janitorial staff at all. They saw themselves as part of the professional staff, a part of the healing team. And part of the article said that this changed everything for them. These people would get to know the patients and their families and will offer support in small but important ways. A box of Kleenex here, a glass of water there, a word of encouragement. One housekeeper reported rearranging pictures on the walls of comatose patients with the hope that a change of scenery might have some positive effect. What they found, they coined this term for those uh, those housekeepers that had this viewpoint, they called them job crafters. See, what they took is they took what was the responsibilities of their job and they crafted a job description that superseded that one, that was above that one. And the researchers finished this way, saying people who job craft don't just reshape their jobs to make life better for themselves, but to serve others in some beneficial way. See, the reality is even the most mundane parts of this, those jobs do bring value to others. But I couldn't help to see the connection to how uh, walking in faithfulness to Christ with your work, walking in the spirit to do good would not just change how you feel about your job, but how it would affect others that are around you. So I want you to think about this. What if you wrote your own spirit-led, doing good job description? and not a whole one long pager like we usually, just a couple sentences. Something really simple, to be a job crafter informed by God's word. The, the job description that supersedes uh, the must do responsibilities and puts the added value, meaning, purpose, and excitement to the job you currently have. 
What if God could change the workplace that you may feel is lame right now and bring your greatest contribution and a commitment to do good? One, a job description that may transform trial into patience or even temptation into self-control or chaos into peace. One verse that's always made it into my thinking uh, as I've thought about these things is 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It reminds me even in the smallest things that seem insignificant that I'm doing unto the Lord, he will use it. He will use it. And just to give you an example of what this might look like, six years ago, I wrote one of these and this is what it looks like. Um, you know, my job, my purpose is to glorify God by loving others, serving others, and influencing people to increasingly believe who they are in Christ and help them realize their full potential in Christ. Now, you might be tempted to go, yeah, but you're a pastor. Of course it looks like that. <laughs> I did this with six other guys, C-level guy, a big wig at 3M, someone who works for university, financial advisor, all of ours looked like this. It's not because of that. This is just the job description that goes above your current one because you're working for the Lord and you're invited to walk and step with the Spirit when you see this as over the top of everything. And this is how we can many times avoid weariness, weariness. I mean, we do have to have balance of work and rest. God does call us to rest, so I don't wanna walk away from that, but I also think that reshaping our workplace can really help because what happens is it's not having to do something to get somewhere. It's inviting God, as he says, let me come alongside you in your work. Let me come alongside you in your work. We wanna invite the Holy Spirit into our work and walk in step with him. So this week, I wanna invite you to walk in the Spirit, to walk in freedom, to walk in fruitfulness, and to walk in doing good, to be a blessing because you've been blessed through your blessed practices. You're free to love people incredibly and invite them into that freedom that cultivate fruitfulness in your heart and action with a friend or a small group. And lastly, to write your doing good job description, something simple that supersedes your normal one. Invite God into your weariness and your work. Walk in the Spirit this week, knowing our freedom, fruit, and ability to do good work has been provided to us by Christ. He secured our freedom and a future. And he did that through the work on the cross that we celebrate every week when we get together. I wanna to invite you to take out the elements at this time as we celebrate communion. This is for followers of Christ. And the scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this 
whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you've given us freedom. You've freedom from bondage, freedom from slavery, freedom from the flesh into a life, an abundant life with you. That we only taste partially now, but that we know is coming in full in your new creation. God, we are so thankful your work. Would you help us to walk in step with you, Holy Spirit? Would you guide and direct us? Would you help us to lean in to where you are leaning? Help you to help us to lean in to what you are up to. Because we need you. God, I, I just pray that all of us here in this room would experience more and more of that freedom you've actually provided us. There's nothing we can do to earn being with you. You've given it to us freely. We get to live a life of just responding. We're so thankful for that. So such a burden lifted. And Father, you just, I just pray if anyone in this room hasn't experienced that freedom, hasn't given their life and surrendered to you to experience that freedom and a new future, that they would do that right now in the quiet of their hearts. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to move. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.